today. I pray that you would take everything about me out of it. And um, Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd be, uh, be with the folks who are here. Uh, help them to just hear from you. Help them to encounter you in, in uh, the scripture and the text and um, the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. This, uh, this week we're going to be looking at Deborah um, and, and Barak. And it's, it's kind of an odd text to preach. Uh, because, uh, well, we'll get to why it's an odd text to preach. But before we dive into it, um, I want to tell a story. Uh, years and years ago, this would be about, I don't know, 18, 19 years ago about now, um, my wife and I were, were not married yet. She was up here in Montana trying to go to school in Bozeman, which uh, didn't work out real well. Uh, and I was in Chicago finishing up my education. And um, we met each other on the Internet, which is a long story on its own. Um, but it was something that uh, very much, like you could see all of the coincidences in my life lined up to introduce me to this woman years later. And I, I'm a firm believer there are no coincidences that God lines up the world the way he lines it up. And, and uh, I, I was introduced to her online by a, a guy I picked up next to his broken down car a decade before. Uh, or not a decade, probably six or seven years before. And so we, we met each other, and we started talking regularly, and we started talking on the phone. And I did enjoy talking to her. Um, I was less than enthused about dating somebody from the Internet because it was the only time in my entire life I've ever been popular with girls. And then dating someone who lived way far away seemed like a terrible idea. Um, and, and so when Jessica decided that she was going to go home from Montana and move back to Texas, um, because things had just finally petered out completely, and it was the obvious choice. She asked me if I would drive out cross-country to meet her. And I said no, because um, I had no interest in, in dating a woman from the Internet. Um, and, and she asked me to pray about it, and I did, and I felt like I was supposed to, even though I didn't want to. And so I, I decided to do something um, um, about it. I said, well, God, here's the deal. I'm going to have some conversations and, and they're going to work out the way I want them to, or I'm not doing it. And I said, I'm going to call her father, and I'm going to call my parents, and I'm going to tell them the situation, and not only will they give me permission, but they'll give me their blessing. And I did my best. I called her dad. I said, hey, uh, you know, Mr. Yearwood, I don't know you. I've been talking to your daughter on the Internet. I'm thinking about driving cross-country to go meet her. What do you think? And uh, his response was, well, you know, that's kind of uncomfortable, and I, I really don't like the idea of my daughter meeting somebody from the Internet, and this is not, I didn't want her to go to Montana in the first place, and all this other stuff. I heard all about everything, and, and in the end he said, but you know what, I respect that you called and asked my permission, and so I will give you my blessing in this. I didn't use the word blessing, and I kind of, but my father-in-law is a, a Southern Baptist pastor, and so you could almost expect it. And so I hung up the phone with him, and I called my parents. And I don't know if any of y'all maybe like, um, in my home, there was one parent who said no to everything and one parent that said yes to everything. Right? My dad said yes, my mom said no. And so my dad answered the phone when I called. I said, Dad, can I speak to Mom? <laughs> she gets on the phone. I said, Mom, I met a woman on the Internet. I'm thinking about driving cross-country to see her. What do you think? And my mom said, well, I'm not really comfortable with this. You know, this could be a serial killer. It could be anything. You don't know what's going on. As it turned out, it was worse. No, I'm kidding. I love you, honey. I, um, 
I, and so I'm, I'm talking to her, and she says, well, you know, I'm really uncomfortable with this, but I'll tell you what. You can have my blessing in this. And I don't remember my mom ever saying you can have my blessing or, you know, whatever. Like that, we were not religious people growing up. Didn't start going to church until we, I was in high school. It was really an unusual. I was surprised to hear the word come out of her mouth and somewhat dismayed. Um, she said, you can have my blessing if you can find somebody to go with you and they pay for the gas. I said, all right. That sounds good. Hung up the phone, and I remember I was sitting in my dorm room, and I, I it was during the summer because I lived at school year-round, and I, I was hung up the phone, and I said, all right, God, it's over because I ain't asking anyone. You can't make me do this. Um, and I, I get up, and I walk out of the room. When I get into the hallway, there's this guy, Rich, who lived next door to me, and he's way on the other end of the building, and he saw me come out of my room. He comes running down the hall. He's a big, like, 6'6" huge guy. He's lumbering down the hall. He says, Eric, I've been looking all over for you. Hey, what's up, Rich? And he said, well, my mom is sick, and i got to go home and see her. I said, really? I'm like, yeah, I don't have a car, but you have a car. If you let me drive, I'll pay for the gas. You can come with for the weekend. Um, just, you know, like, I, I need to go. And it was just a few miles away from where I was supposed to meet Jessica. Um, and, and at that point, I knew I was beat. Um, and, and I was married 11 months later, um, but it wasn't what I wanted. Like, I, I prayed and I felt like I was supposed to do something, but I, I first didn't trust God that much to do what was in my best interest, and second, um, it, it, I didn't want to do what God wanted me to do. I don't know if any of y'all have ever been there. Um, in the end, it's worked out very well. Um, as we dive into the story of Deborah, the story of Deborah is actually not about Deborah. It's about a guy named Barak, right? And we can, you know, like Deborah is like sort of the shining star in the story, but she's not what the story is about. Everybody with me? And so I'm going to apologize up front to everyone who's been to a women's conference and is very excited to hear about Deborah. I'm sorry. <laughs> Um, but there's good stuff to say about Deborah, and we will touch on her in a minute, okay? Um, a little background, the story of Judges, and it not being about Deborah is kind of a good thing, because the story of Judges is the story of the decline of Israel. And so, like, every judge along the way gets crummier and crummier than the one before him. Got it? And so if Deborah was in the, is kind of in the middle, if she was the judge in the middle, she would have to be awful. But she's not really awful. She's pretty... Quiet, you. Um... She, she was awesome, right? And so, like, it's a break in the pattern, but it's only sort of a break in the pattern. We'll get to why in a minute. But it's the story of the downhill slide. And we're going to be doing basically the next three weeks on Deborah because there's Deborah, and then there's the story of Yale, which is a lot of fun. Um, and then there's a song at the end. Like, that's a whole chapter long, and we'll do that in two weeks. So um, just heads up. Um, the Jewish people are living in the promised land. They have no king, and they're becoming more and more like their pagan neighbors. They're becoming Canaanized. Um, and there are all of these crazy pagan practices they're, like, absorbing and swallowing up. And, and that includes the worship of a god named Baal. Baal was a big cow, right? Um, and they worshipped him. He was the god of weather is one of the things he was god of. And we'll get into why that's important um, later. In the ancient cultures, last bit of background here, women were not held in very high esteem. Everybody with me? Um, in ancient Israel, women had a bunch of extra rights that most of the ancient world didn't give them. 
They actually had a lot of additional rights. Women could do some business. Women could, um, like, couldn't just be sold into slavery if you got tired of them. Like, in the ancient world, actually, even after this point, it was very normal for a Jewish man to say, well, I'm tired of you. You burned toast this morning. Get out of my house. That's grounds for divorce. And the woman would have to leave with nothing. And, like, that was, you know, the ancient world, women not held in high esteem. Amongst the Jews, the Jews were very liberal in this regard. They gave women a lot of rights. The women had a lot of protections um, and in fact, actually, the scriptures like like outline a lot of specific protections for women, and the fact that God takes it very seriously that men protect their wives. Um, wives were were not just an accessory. Um, so, as we dive into, it, we're going to learn something here. This is four one to three, um, and the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. So the people are doing evil. Um, this is every story of the judges. Every story in the judges has this formula, right? It starts off with the people doing evil, meaning God saved them, and they got sick of following God like after he saved them, and they're like, well, we're going to go back to this pagan thing we were doing. It was fun. Um, and so after Ehud died and they had like this extended period of peace, um, they started like returning to their pagan ways because they never really repented. They just sort of asked for help. Um, and the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan. Now, there's an odd thing. Those of y'all, if you're like an extreme Bible student, uh, Jabin is a name that appears twice in the scriptures here and in the book of Joshua. And there's a sort of conundrum. Well, how could Jabin be here and in Joshua because he's like 180 years old now? You know, he certainly would have been dead. Um, Jabin was probably like um, Henry for the king of England, Right. How many Henrys were there? At least eight, right? <laughs> and at least that many wives if you were the eighth one. Um, don't lose your head over that. It's a joke. <laughs> it was awful. There's an English person here. That's why I did it. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, <laughs> there... <laughs> So um, it was probably like a throne name, right? And so Jabin would have been like the name of multiple kings, but he's the king of Canaan who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Caesarea. Now, Jabin has no lines and no actions. Caesarea, though, is a big deal. He is a guy that turns up not only in the scriptures but in extra-biblical sources. Like ancient Jewish writers wrote about Caesarea because he was such a tough, mean, nasty guy that, like, he has legends that grew up around him. And actually, I have an excerpt from one of the legends. When he was 30 years old, this is talking about Caesarea, he had conquered the whole world. At the sound of his voice, the strongest walls fell in a heap. By the way, who is that really that did that? It was actually God, right? God did it with Joshua, where at the sound of his voice, like, the, the horns blowing, the walls of Jericho fell. And so, like, there's some canonization you can see here. They're, like starting to attribute God's work to pagans. Anyway, so the sound of his voice, the strongest wall fell in a heap, and the wild animals in the woods were chained to their spot in fears, like deers in a headlight, right? Uh, the proportions of his body were vast beyond description, meaning that Caesarea was huge. He'd speak and walls would fall and animals would cower in fear and he was an enormous man and dived beneath the uh, um, excuse me beyond description if he took a bath in the river and dived beneath the surface enough fish were caught in his beard to feed a multitude <laughs> they are these guys all right so like just to give some perspective here the jewish people are wet in their pants scared of this guy right 
I mean, I catch food in my beard, but like when you catch fish in your beard, you are a big man, right? Like Ross does that, but not enough to feed a multitude. Um, <laughs> love you, Ross. <laughs> You're a big guy. <laughs> Um, and it required no less than 900 horses to draw his chariots in which he rode. So this is a man, he's like Paul Bunyan on steroids, right? The Jewish people were terrified of Caesarea. He was a big, bad, like, man. He was uh, Leroy Brown, right? Um, or Jim. What's the Jim? You know, you tug on Superman's cape, but you don't mess around with Jim. You don't mess around with Caesarea. He is tough, he is big, and he is bad. Um, Caesarea, who lived in Herath... I'm skipping over that. Um, When the people of Israel... I practiced it, and I still can't say it. Um, When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. So Caesarea oppressed the people for about 20 years. Now, 900 iron chariots, what's up with that? Um, We talked about this before, like these are the guys that the Jewish people failed to dislodge because they had iron chariots. You know, you can't can't beat guys with tanks if you don't have tanks. Now, the chariots weren't exactly tanks. They had a different purpose. A chariot would be used for, one, like if you were in formation as an army, they just ride it in front of you and shoot you with arrows, right? And that's not nice. Um, The other thing is if your army broke and you ran away, they would use the chariots to run you down and kill you. It was basically like the way that, that historians describe it. A chariot was a killing platform. Um, and the presence of iron, like the Jewish people didn't develop iron working as a technology until King David showed up. And so these guys, they have inferior weapons because they don't have iron weapons. It's probably the case that Caesar's army, they have iron weapons. And so the Jewish people don't have that. That's not good, right? Um, it's not a good thing when you hit the other guy's sword and your sword breaks. Um, so these guys are, are awesome, and they've got chariots, and they are oppressing the Jewish people, and they cry out to God, not because they're sorry for rebelling, right? They're crying out to God because, because life is hard, and they want God to fix it, right? This would be the rough equivalent, like if we understand how God perceives disobedience and unfaithfulness to him, this would be the rough equivalent of a man... Um, cheating on his wife, getting kicked out, discovering that living in his car is not nice. And when winter sets in and it's 40 below, he comes home and he says, honey, please take me back. I can't stand freezing out there. Not, I'm sorry I cheated on you, but save me from freezing to death. Got it? Um, and that's where these, guy, these guys are. They don't, they're not sorry they're cheating on God. And that's how God perceives this kind of unfaithfulness. It's infidelity. Um, it's, it's, you know, like Maryland fidelity. Actually, the book of Hosea is all about that. Read it if you want to understand how much God is hurt by us chasing after things that aren't him. Um, and so, like, they're oppressed. They say, God, help us. And God has moved to, like, save them. I, we just read that. Let me skip past it. Assuming it will. There it goes. Um, now, Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth. By the way, Lapidoth means burning bright light. And a lot of people like have said that the reason she's married to this man is because um, she was sort of this bright light or very temperamental in Israel at the time. Um, but she is a very strong woman. She is a prophetess, um, a very unusual thing. She is a woman who has authority in the ancient world. You would never see this anywhere else. 
Um, it's not something that was common at all. You had a pharaohess in Egypt at one point um, before this, but she was very short-lived and she was very unusual and probably a very strong-willed woman. She was the one who saved, probably, probably saved Moses from drowning. Um, anyway, so she's married to Lapidoth and was judging Israel at the time. So she is judging Israel and she is a prophet. Um, now the judges, she is not the judge we're discussing, um, but she is basically God's messenger who is running the show in Israel. When people are in trouble, she's saving them. There are folks who come along and said, well, she was judging like, like a Supreme Court justice. But the same word is used here, and there's actually no good indication that that's the case. The only reason we would say that she's not a judge is because she's a woman, right? And in the ancient world and sometimes in the modern world, people don't like the idea of women being leaders. Um, Deborah was running the show. Everybody with me? She was not only running the show, she was talking for God. Um, that is a huge deal. She used to sit under, a palm, under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came to her for judgment. So the people would come to her, and she would give them direction, and she would, like, settle disputes. She would do all this stuff because she ran the show at the time. She was the boss. By the way, Deborah means honeybee, right? Um, sweet, but she stings. We should have named Abby that. Um, hi, sweetheart. <laughs> she just walked in as I said it. Um, so Deborah is running the show. She is a, an oddity in the ancient world because she's a woman who is in charge. Um, she sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinam, uh, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? Go gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 people of the Naphtali and the people of Zebulun, and I will draw out Caesarea and the general of Jabin's army to meet you by the river of Kishon and his chariots and his troops, and I will give them into your hand. So she asks him, she says, look, gather soldiers, go out and fight this guy and beat the tar out of him because God's going to give them to you, Right? Um, this is not a small thing because this is, this is kind of the military equivalent of like a David and Goliath, right? These guys are tough. There are a lot of them. The Jews are completely convinced that they cannot beat them. They are so scared of them, they have made up tall tales about Caesarea because he is that tough, right? Like, and Caesarea loses. I'm going to jump ahead and tell you he loses in the end, right? Like, like God defeats this guy. He is no match for God. But... Um, but they're still afraid of him, even though he's a defeated man. Like, he was, he was tough. And so the Jewish people, like, like, Deborah commands, hey, go get your army, go out and fight. Now, in a standard judge's story, this would be the raising up of a champion to deliver the people. You got a question there, Trent, or are you just stretching? Okay. Um, <laughs> this would be a standard, like, raising up of a judge. The story is kind of about Jabin, and in fact... Jabin turns up in Hebrews, but Deborah doesn't. There's this whole story in Hebrews, this whole section where it talks about people who like acted by faith and lived by faith, and Jabin is mentioned by name. Um, and now I'm not going to be able to find it. Um, he's mentioned by name, and he, he's like identified as a man who does things by faith. Now, mind you, the person who has like done all the acting and is in charge is Deborah, and she calls out Jabin, and she says, well, hey, um, go do this. Or Barak, I'm sorry, Jabin was the king. Names. 
Um, Barak said to her, if you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said to him, I will go with you. And we're going to pause right there. When I was in junior high, the neighbor kid beat me up, right? I know it's hard to believe I'm not an action hero. It was not particularly tough. And the neighbor's kid um, on the school bus stop, waiting for the school bus, he, he beat me up. My sister heard about it and went and found him and beat the tar out of him. Now, gentlemen, (laughs) ladies, you don't have to answer this. Gentlemen, if your older sister went and beat up a bully who was shorter than you, like this bully, he was short, he was a little guy. Um, If your older sister did that for you, would that be a proud moment? Would that be a, (laughs) says the older sister, and there we are. I love you, honeybee. Um... And, (laughs) oh my gosh, Um, it's not a proud moment. Jabin says, hey, I'm not going out to fight this guy unless you go with me. Barak says, I'm not going out to fight this guy unless you go with me, Deborah. He is scared that God isn't going to help him. He is not fully convinced that God is going to do what he said, right? It's probably the case that Barak, like, you know, he trusts some other gods, maybe. He trusts a lot of things. He's probably a soldier, actually. But he doesn't really trust that God is going to hand this this um, enemy, giant, general, um, Paul Bunyan guy um, into his hands. He says, I don't really believe that God is... Oh, look, I lost my... There it is. Um, he doesn't really believe that God is going to take care of him. He doesn't trust that God is going to deliver him. Um, and so we, we go back here. Um, I will surely go with you, she says. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory. For the Lord will sell Caesarea into the hands of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. And 10,000 men went up at his heels. And Deborah went up with him. So he got Deborah to go, I'll fight, but only if you go with me. Right? Um, not a manly moment. And actually, God says, you didn't trust me. And because you didn't trust me, you're not going to like be glorified. You're not going to get anything good out of this. Like what you had coming was fantastic, but like you're not going to get it now. I'm going to hand it over to a woman. And like the assumption, of course, for the Jewish reader, for the ancient reader would be that... Um, that Deborah would be the one who would deliver, that Deborah would be um, the one who would, would actually kill Caesarea. Um, but that's, that's not what happens, um, just to kind of spoil it in advance. But Deborah is going along with him, and she goes along for the fight. And we, we learn, actually... Um, okay, uh, am I up there? Okay. Uh, now, Haber, the Kenite, had separated from the Kenites, uh, the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Zananim, which was near Kadesh. Now, this is an aside. Haber is married to a gal named Yael, right? And he enters the story because their presence in the story is a big deal, right? Because Haber's wife is going to kill Caesarea. Um, she's going to be the woman who's... But we're going to talk about her next week. Okay, and so this is a little aside in the story. Look, this guy who has a peace treaty with Caesarea, 
right? Like, like we find that elsewhere, that there's this peace treaty that exists. And so, like, Caesarea feels safe in his camp. Like, this, this nomad has showed up near the site of the battle. And he sets up camp, and they're living there. And so, like, this story um, is sort of intertwined, but it makes more sense for next week. Um, when Caesarea was told that Barak, son of Abinam, uh, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Caesarea called out his chariots, 900 chariots of armor, iron, and all the men who were with him, from Harasheth Ho- Ho- yeah, Hagayim to the river of Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day which the Lord has given Caesarea into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him, and the Lord routed Caesarea. By the way, who routed Caesarea? The Lord did, right? And actually we find out in the next chapter, because there's this song, that these chariots and these soldiers come out, and like what had happened was the army was set up in a very narrow passageway um, between a river and like another feature that prevented them from like maneuvering around a whole lot. And as Caesarea like starts moving in with his chariots, all of a sudden a downfall like a storm of biblical proportions hits and all of a sudden all of the ground turns to mud and those narrow wheeled chariots do what they get stuck and so the soldiers begin to panic when they realize that their technological advantage is disintegrating and that panic creates disorder and they're slaughtered right They did not win the battle by the strength of their own arm. They did not win the battle by better technology. They won the battle because God won it for them. And mind you, um, Baal, the God that all of the Israelites are worshiping, is the God of weather. (laughs) Like, Baal doesn't deliver them with weather. God does. Um, Barak... um, All he really had to do was show up and he was going to win. And he's going to win spectacularly. But he didn't trust God enough to jump. He didn't trust God enough to take a step in the direction that God told him to go. And because of that, he's robbed of any credit, any anything. And actually, like forever and ever and ever and ever, Barak is going to be known as a man who needed a woman to go with him to pick a fight and had the fight finished by another woman. Um, the Jewish men in this time, right? And men is the word like here, right? Because Deborah is awesome, right? Deborah, in fact, basically commands the army. She says, all right, go get them. God delivered them to you. Go, do it. You know, I mean, like Deborah is in charge. The men at the time have declined to such a degree that they are unwilling to trust God and they're unwilling to act and they need women to do it for them. I'm not trying to be sexist. This is the way that the Bible is written. This is the story that's there. Um, the message we get about where the Jewish people are at this point is that the men have become weak, right? And God raises up other leaders, strong leaders that are women. Um, I was, I've was i been pondering over this text all week. I was trying to decide how to preach it right, and I had a great pastor friend of mine say this to me. He said, God doesn't act without redeeming something, right? There's always something that gets redeemed. And the message, the redemption we see here is very awesome, like... God demonstrates that women can actually do stuff, right? Like that women can stand up and do great things. And for the Jewish men at the time, this is a shame that they can't do it. But God can do anything through anyone that he chooses. Everybody with me? Um, And this spectacular victory is won basically because 
um, women win it. Now, what do we do with this? How do we apply this? Well, this gets a lot trickier, right? Um, I'm going to tell you that the number one thing, if you're going to draw anything out of this, is um, trust God and don't be afraid to step out when he directs you, right? Um, Not everybody is going to meet someone on the Internet and get married, right? Like, it's not even necessarily a good idea. Um, Sometimes we find that what we want is what we say God wants. And we have to be very careful to discern his will properly. But once we know it, we have to move forward, right? We act according to what God has given us because that's what God has given us to do. Sometimes that means helping people that you don't want to help. Sometimes it means serving. Sometimes it means giving things away that you don't want to give up. Sometimes it means abandoning sin that is your sin, but you really don't want to give it up. Sometimes it means finding other people to walk with you so you can overcome something you're stuck in, right? And that is especially hard, right, men? Because sometimes we've got to acknowledge that we're not perfect or that we're stuck in a sin that we don't want to acknowledge that we're stuck in. Um, the reality here is that um, when God commands, he either rescues us or he meant for us to crash in the process for a reason. I've had things crash on me and God come out in spectacular form on the other side. Um, I would rather crash and burn on God's side than win on my own. Everybody with me? Um, now, there's another way that this applies. Um, we are, this is a Christian church, right? We are followers of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the perfect, committed, no sin man who was also completely God, who took all our sins on himself, was nailed to a cross, suffered, like took all our punishment on himself, and like, like we are forgiven because he took our punishment, right, if we are his followers. If we follow Jesus. He took our sin for us. He won this battle on our behalf. I don't have to be perfect to be right with God. I just have to follow Jesus because he was perfect for me. Now, a lot of times it's hard to trust that Jesus did it for me, right? And so, like believers, sometimes we add stuff, right? Well, in order to be a Christian, you have to don't drink, dance, or chew, or go with girls who do. Right? Um, because that'll save you. No, it won't. You know, oh, you got to vote for this party. Oh, you got to um, give this much. Oh, you got to um, send money to some crooked televangelist. Oh, you got to do this. Oh, you got to do that. Nope. You have to have faith in Christ. You have to be in a relationship with Him. You have to follow Him like you have to be His man or His woman, and that's what saves you. You don't earn it. You don't, like, do some spectacular feat to make God love you. That's just not how it works. Um, We have to trust that. But a lot of times we want other things to do it for us. But that's not how it works. It is a, like, I am helpless without you, God, commitment. I'm facing up against this giant who catches fish with his beard, even more than Ross does. um, And I can't beat him, but I trust that God will beat him for me. And that's sin and death, ultimately, for us, right? I can't beat my own sin. I'll tell you, I try to overcome my own sin, and it's like I get worse. Anybody ever experienced that? No matter how hard I try, I get worse at what I'm doing um, because God assists us in the process. Um, in the end, actually, God acts despite Barak. I said the right name. Ha <laughs> ha. Um, God acts despite him. And sometimes God acts despite us, despite what we desire because he knows what is good and he brings us where we're supposed to go. And that's what happens with him. Now I'm going to have a slight aside here. Men. I'm going to pick on men because I like picking on men. 
Um, as I was uh, as I was working this week, I went out to the bits. As whenever I get stuck with a sermon, I try to find something to do, and I contemplate and I think and I chew. And I had this crazy realization um, about Barack um, and about husbands sometimes and men sometimes. Sometimes we get so stuck paying attention to what our wives think and what our wives are doing that we fail to act like as a leader and on God's behalf, right? We fail to be obedient to God because we're so worried about our wives. Um, this is something I struggle with sometimes. I think, well, you know, what's my wife think? You know, what are, how am I doing in relation to her? And I worry about, like, doing the right thing before my wife. But if I do the right thing before God, I'm fine with my wife. Does that make sense? Um, at the end of the day, what God put in men is a desire to lead and a desire to be strong and a desire to be something more um, because we're made in his image, Right? Um, but that's what sin does to men. Like you look at Adam, what did Adam do? Um, Adam ate an apple. Actually, what Adam did was Adam didn't say a doggone thing while his wife was tempted, right? Um, Eve met the, the serpent, met Satan. Satan said, hey, you know, you won't really die. Go ahead and eat the apple. It'll be fine. The fruit, you know, like it'll work out well for you. And what Adam's doing is he's doing nothing. He's standing right there. He's listening and he's doing nothing. Um, because passivity is the downfall sin of all men. We don't act. What does Barack do? He doesn't act. And in fact, he's so wound up, the way Adam was so wound up, um, you know, Adam's so wound up, well, my wife told me to do it. Right? And when God shows up, that woman that you gave me made me eat the apple. So it's y'all's fault. Um, and Barack, well, I'll go fight if you go with me because I can't do it on my own. Men, um, Leading means serving. It means sacrificing yourself. It means all of these things. It means following Jesus with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Um, but it's easy to get tripped over about what our wives are doing. Right? So, well, my wife is being mean to me, and so I get to be mean back. Nope. Wife is being mean to you, so you love her ten times more because that's what Jesus does for us. God calls you to do something, you do it. You don't blink, you don't question, you act. Right? Um, and it's hard because you've got to figure out what God wants you to do. And that means you've got to listen to him and know him and talk to him and everything else. I, when I first got married, I would sometimes do stupid things. And I would say to my wife, well, I didn't know that would upset you. Now I've been married forever. And I know what my wife wants me to do because I've been around her for a while. Right? Um, my relationship with God when I started was thin. And I didn't know what God wanted from me. Um, I'm... 25, 30 years down the road. Now, I know what God wants me to do. Sometimes I just don't want to do it, right? Sometimes I'm slow to do it. But in the end, it means pursuing in prayer and reading and everything else is intimacy and connection with God because that's what God wants from us. And that brings us to a place where we're able to act with knowledge of what God wants. Um, we're going to close in prayer. And then instead of a blessing, we're going to do something a little different, Okay. Um, and I'm going to call Rebecca up to play piano. You'll understand in a minute. <laughs> um, let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would be with us. Um, I pray that you would help us to uh, be obedient uh, to you without question, that we would act in faith and jump when you, when you put it in front of us. Help us to be eager um, to step up and, and um, play music when called to in the last moment or... or um, serve people that we don't want to serve or love people we don't want to love or do whatever. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, um, everybody stand up for a second. Wrong song. I'll tell you what. Hold